1431 is where I'll start. Proverbs 1431 through 1517. Proverbs 1431 through 1517. He who oppresses the poor reproaches his maker, but he who honors him has mercy on the needy. The wicked is banished in his wickedness, but the righteous has a refuge in his death. Wisdom rests in the heart of him who has understanding, but what is in the heart of fools is made known. Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. The king's favor is toward a wise servant, but his wrath is against him who causes shame. A soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. The tongue of the wise uses knowledge rightfully, but the mouth of fools pours forth foolishness. The eyes of the Lord are in every place, keeping watch on the evil and the good. A wholesome tongue is a tree of life, but perverseness in it breaks the spirit. A fool despises his father's instruction, but he who receives correction is prudent. In the house of the righteous there is much treasure, but in the revenue of the wicked is trouble. The lips of the wise disperse knowledge, but the heart of the fool does not do so. The sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord, but the prayer of the upright is his delight. The way of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord, but he who loves him, he loves him who follows righteousness. Harsh discipline is for him who forsakes the way. But he who hates correction will die. Hell and destruction are before the Lord. So how much more the hearts of the sons of men. A scoffer does not love one who corrects him, nor will he go to the wise. A merry heart makes a cheerful countenance, but by sorrow of the heart the spirit is broken. The heart of him who has understanding seeks knowledge, but the mouth of fools feeds on foolishness. All the days of the afflicted are evil, but he who is of a merry heart has a continual feast. Better is a little with the fear of the Lord than great treasure with trouble. Better is a dinner of herbs where love is than a fatted calf with hatred. Amen. Then Luke chapter 10, verse 23 to 37, this is the... The parable of the Good Samaritan. Children, there are a handful, maybe two handfuls, maybe three parables that are known not just by Christians, but very often by the world as well. Um, The world knows uh, the parable of the Good Samaritan. It's often quoted as uh, a reason that you should do whatever the world thinks you should do. You should prove yourself to be a good Samaritan. Uh, with the Lord's help, let us uh, try and see what uh, the Good Samaritan is really all about. Luke 10, starting at verse 23, we'll read through verse 37. And Jesus turned to his disciples and said privately, Blessed are the eyes which see the things you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings have desired to see what you see. And have not seen it, and to hear what you hear, and have not heard it. 
And now behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tested Jesus, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? What is your reading of it? So he answered and said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, You have answered rightly. Do this and you will live. But he, wanting to justify himself, said to Jesus, But who is my neighbor? Jesus answered and said, A certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among the thieves, who stripped him of his clothing, wounded him, and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a certain priest came down that road. When the priest saw this man... He passed on the other side. Likewise, the Levite, when he arrived at the place, he came and looked, and he also passed by on the other side. But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. So he went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, and he set him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. On the next day, when he departed, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper and said to him, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, when I come again, I will repay you. So which of these three do you think was a neighbor to him who fell among the thieves? And he said, He who showed mercy on him. Then Jesus said to him, Go and do likewise. Then the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Amen. I want to ask you a question tonight. It is the same question that this man asked the Lord Jesus in our text. Who is my neighbor? You might say, who is your neighbor? Jesus tells us that prophets and kings have desired to see and hear what this truth is. They have desired to see and hear who their own neighbor is, yet they have not seen and have not heard it. It might sound crazy, but I want you to imagine not knowing who your neighbor is. Newsflash, the Christian church does not know who its neighbor is. And yet I'm not so sure they desire to see And here, do you desire to see and hear who is your neighbor? It is a profound and it is hardly able to be grasped in one sitting. Why in the world the Lord Jesus chooses this simple message to convey such important theological truth? If you were to read 1 Timothy chapter 5 verse 8 you would probably begin to be on the right trail. Remember, Jesus is teaching this man what it is to be saved, or we could say what it is to prove to be saved. And he uses the example of showing mercy to one's neighbor. If this is proof of salvation, then if you do not show mercy to your neighbor, the implication is you are not saved. That's what Jesus wants this man to see. 
the one who understands what salvation is, is the one who shows mercy to their neighbor. Listen to 1 Timothy 5.8. says, but if anyone does not provide for his own, and especially for those of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. He proves to be an unbeliever is basically the implication. If you don't provide for those closest to you, and then we might say, and your neighbor, right? You have denied the faith, and you are worse than an unbeliever. That's a kind of a, a twisted up way, not a wrong way, but a twisted up way to say the exact lesson that Jesus is teaching to this man in Luke chapter 10. Someone who goes down from Jerusalem to Jericho is likely someone who would have been in covenant with the Lord. We might call them, in modern terms, a Christian. Someone who is a church attender. Someone who knows the Lord, at least outwardly. Evidently, he did not know that there were thieves in Jericho because he goes to Jericho and these thieves take his clothes, they beat him up, and they leave him. Children, I don't know if you've ever been in a... a, a scuffle with one of your siblings, or if you've ever fallen and gotten hurt, but you've probably never gotten hurt to such an extent that you were almost dead. This man is so beaten up in this passage in Luke 10 that the Bible says he was almost dead. He is that down and out. The Jerusalem man, he's not in a good way. He is brought to nothing through an actual beating. Not just an experiential one like the psalmist might describe or like um, some others in the scriptures might describe, but an actual beating. Everything was taken off of him and the thieves nearly killed him. And what Jesus does is he uses this to set the scene with this this helpless man who is very obviously going to have to be nursed back to health as we saw him in the text. He's going to have to be nursed back to health if anything is going to come of him. He is, in a sense, a man who could not find his neighbor. He was helpless. He probably couldn't open his own eyes. Who is the first man that passes by him? What you kind of get here is a, uh, a digression of holiness. Right? A priest is someone who would have served at the altar. Someone who would have worked around the sacrifices of God. Someone who would have handled the word of God handled the cleansings, who can come in to worship, who can't, and all those things. This priest, this man who would have had arguably the greatest understanding of the Word of God, is said to have come in vicinity to this man who had been beaten near death, and he passes him by. But you also have a Levite. You might say, well, I thought Levites Levites are priests. Well, they are of a sort. But they assist the high priest. They assist the ones who serve at the altar. So it's kind of like a step down, right? So not the, the smartest man, not the holiest man is going to help him, and not even the one who is a step below him. This person who is an assistant to the priest, who also would have served in the temple. Both of them are said to have passed by on the other side. The Levite is described as even having stopped and looked. What a thought. This is such a profound way to describe disobedience. To describe a refusal of love and charity 
to describe a refusal of obeying the Lord's commands. Well, you stop and look at the thing that you ought to do, and you decide to pass it by instead. Looking on to the thing that you ought to do something about, you, do, you even stop. You almost do it, but no. You eventually decide to simply pass by on the other side. I'm sure the Levite didn't care who his neighbor was. There is no question of obligation in these situations. There's no meditation on the providence of God. Maybe God has placed this man in my path. Maybe God has put these people right here in front of me. But they live based on feelings. We could say they live based on comfort. They live based on sinful desires. And then they respond according to them. Now, I don't want to overly dwell on this, but in Ephesians Ephesians, Ephesians 2, Verse 3, Paul describes the manner of behavior that we have been saved from. In Ephesians 2, 3, you don't don't need to turn. I'm just going to rehearse some of the verbiage for you. He says that we were made alive, though we were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, right? So we lived as sinners, lived according to our trespasses, lived in submission to the prince of the power of the air, lived as those who are the sons of disobedience. We lived as those who are outside and we say they are disobedient. And he says, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others So these two things that were described as being saved from, first is a matter of the lusts of our flesh. Now children, you need to know that there's at least two ways the Bible uses the term flesh. Sometimes it means this, like your skin, right? You can pull up your flesh. That's not what it's talking about here. It's talking about the evil nature within you. That's the way the Bible describes your sinful nature. Indeed, one of the words is your flesh. He doesn't even call it the sinful flesh because it's so understood that when he speaks of flesh in this context, it is sinful. We live according to, lived, past tense, according to the lusts, the desires, the sinful desires of our flesh. That which we felt like doing, we did, much like the Levite and the priests. We fulfill the desires of this flesh and of the mind, and we're by nature children of wrath. We do not live in this manner anymore. We've not only been redeemed from bad behavior, per se, we have also been redeemed from the wrath of God by the Lord Jesus. This same Lord Jesus that came to his neighbors first, and then to the Gentiles. (laughs) Have you ever noticed that in John chapter 1? John says that Jesus came to his own, and his own did not receive him. Jesus, don't you understand who your neighbor is? It's anyone. Anybody's your neighbor. No. Your own are your neighbor. Of course, Jesus understands this. He does so even more clearly than any of us. I've kind of let my cards out on the table. Who is your neighbor? Well, it's the people in proximity to you. Very simply. Your, neighbor are, your neighbors are the people that you know. 
Your neighbor is the person or persons to which you are the closest. Who ends up helping this man from Jerusalem to Jericho? Well, it's a Samaritan. This is normally considered the type of person no one would want to touch. But let's be honest, when you're down and out like this, you don't really care. And quite frankly, the man didn't even know because he was left for dead. When push comes to shove, who is your neighbor is an easy question to answer. Have you ever noticed in a catastrophe, in an actual difficult circumstance, I don't mean your son fell and broke his arm and you need some help that day. I mean your family catastrophically dies in a car wreck. I mean there's a national disaster. The people who come to help you, the people who are there first, they are your neighbors, those whom are closest to you. The people who see you and say, I'm going to help. That person is my neighbor. A Samaritan was smarter. A Samaritan understood more than the men who were trained to serve in the temple of God. When push comes to shove, who is your neighbor is an easy question to answer. It is anyone with whom you are in proximity of helping. Indeed, it's to those to whom you are closest. Your neighbor is those to whom you owe mercy. That's an interesting way to think about it. Your neighbor is the one to whom you owe mercy. Have you ever thought about this? You don't owe mercy to all people equally. You don't have enough mercy to give. You're not God. That doesn't mean that you get to be unmerciful to people, but you can only be merciful to the people whom you interact with. You can only be merciful to the people whom you see and know and have an actual opportunity to serve. Those whom you will never and have never met, you do not owe them mercy. You do not owe them mercy. That doesn't mean you can't extend them mercy if there's an opportunity in the providence of God to extend it. But you don't owe them mercy. You may choose, like the saints in Corinth that Paul describes in First and Second Corinthians, to give above what you normally would in order to help them. But owing them is not the same as choosing to bless them beyond what you would normally be able to do. Notice the man in this text in Luke 10, or the men who neglect this person in the ditch, basically right in front of them, are those who don't understand who their neighbor is. But the one who understands who his neighbor is, is the one who saw the man right in front of him and chose to have mercy. Him choosing to have mercy on this man did not cause him to be his neighbor. Because he was his neighbor, he had mercy on the man. Now, where does this proximity, this closeness start most immediately? It starts in the home. Your children, your spouse, they are your neighbor. Have you ever noticed that when the Lord Jesus summarizes the the commandments or when he asks someone to, to give him what the commandments are, they say, love God and love your neighbor, right? Love God. 
And love your neighbor. He doesn't say love your spouse, love your children, love your grandchildren, love your cousins, love your nieces, love your your neighbors. He says love your neighbor. Because those who are closest to you, regardless of their relation, are your neighbors. Those who are closest to you. It's almost like there's concentric circles working outward, right? Those who are closest to you are your neighbors. Those moved out a little bit might be called your neighbor neighbors. (laughs) Those moved out a little bit further are called your neighbor neighbor neighbors, right? But those whom you owe the most immediate service to are your actual neighbors. You cannot love your own rightly if you claim to be a neighbor to one who gets what you owe to your own. Does that make sense? You cannot love your own people rightly. You cannot love your neighbor rightly if in your claiming to be a neighbor to someone else, you give that to to them what you owe to those who are closer to you. Let me say it more simply. If you neglect your family, if you neglect your people, in order to love your neighbor, you're not loving your neighbor, is the implication. If you don't love those closest to you first and best, you don't love them at all. You see, churches have to deal with this. Just how will they use their money towards missions? Giving to those abroad is not necessarily erroneous. But if it takes away from those who are actually your neighbors, you have forgotten who your neighbor is. You have refused to provide for your own. And the Bible says you become worse than an unbeliever. The consistency of 1 Timothy 8 demands this when compared to the Good Samaritan. It's such a bizarre thing to say about something seemingly so insignificant. But here's the thing. Maybe it's not insignificant. People have been dealing with this temptation to focus out there more than right here for a long time. I'm sure that this priest had a very sound theological justification for ignoring that man in the ditch. I'm sure the Levite had a really good excuse why he was unable to help the man right in front of him. But it wasn't enough. They declared that they had no idea who their neighbor was. And Jesus said they were in error. We could say that they did not understand the law. They did not understand salvation. As I said, people have been dealing with this temptation to focus out there more than right here for a long time. You kind of hear this. It, it kind of bubbles up in politics. Now, this is not a political passage per se, though the principles could be applied to politics. Where you hear it over and over again, especially when the debates come up. These politicians that rightfully wish that our leaders would be more concerned about us than about countries out there. Right? When they ask the question, who should get more money? This country or us? You're grappling with the principle here. Whom do you Love, who is your neighbor? You see, it's an easy question for a politician to make because their money is not affected by it. But yours is. Mine is. People have been dealing with this temptation 
for a long time. And I'm not sure when it became the case that it is regarded as more holy to be for those abroad in order to prove that you really understand the gospel. If you go back and think about maybe the way that you were raised in the American church. I don't, I don't know if you ever heard this, but I'm going to just share with you my experience. There would be guilt trip after guilt trip after guilt trip after guilt trip about going into foreign missions because you have so much here at home. When the principle in the Bible says you owe your own first. It doesn't mean you can't give to others. But you would almost feel sinful if you chose to give what God had given you to your own people instead of choosing to be a foreign missionary. And I don't know if you studied the foreign missions movement very closely. It's not always very successful. It's very much not. Neglecting what's at home in order to help those elsewhere is a problem. Giving beyond and above your needs at home to, and not neglecting your home is not an issue. But walking around the despondent one on the road before you is the sin that Jesus is addressing. That is not merciful. You become like the priest. You become like the Levite when you behave that way. Again, you can have sound theological explanation. But the text says you're not merciful if you pass by the man closest to you. There is tension here, isn't it? But I'm persuaded that we have to snap it backwards towards our home in order to recover what is sound. As I mentioned just a moment ago, have you ever thought about why the missions movement took so long to happen? If you read books about mission work, depending on when it was written, they'll normally say that a pastor or a theologian or somebody like that was the founder of modern missions. Why did it take so long to happen? if the way that it was being done needed to be done. There's tension. But if you think about it, Christianizing the West had already happened. Or it was already happening. Have you ever thought about the insanity of saying, I would rather adopt than have a biological child of my own. There are plenty of needy children out there. Now, if you can't have your own physical children biologically, that's another discussion. But what does the one have to do with the other? It's given in to this idea. You don't need to love your own because that's selfish. And behind that is you have no idea who your neighbor is. The New York Times, on August 31st, put out an article with this headline. Preferring biological children is immoral. Preferring biological children is immoral. Desiring to have children like you. This is not the same headline, but from Reformed writers within the last year or so seen online. Desiring to have children who look like you is racist. And there are sound people who would come to the defense of this stuff. But it's the same principle. We have no idea who our neighbor is. Not a clue. And we buy into this lie that the world gives us, that the church has bought into. 
that it's more gracious to give to those afar than it is to serve those whom God has put right in front of us. And who that has more in common with is not the Samaritan, it is the Levite and the priest. And Jesus says that is not merciful. How did we get here? We have no idea who our neighbor is. Christ, he would have us to see the importance of getting that question right. Because again, just think about it. Jesus is faced with this question from the man in verse 25. What shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he goes on to tell him who his neighbor is. It matters. It certainly does matter. Jesus told him at the end, go and do likewise. Show mercy on your own. Christ would have us to see the importance of getting this question right. May we be those who show mercy in the right order, giving it first to whom it is due, and then any extra we have sharing with those who are in need. Just as Christ himself came first to his own and then to the world. Amen. Let's pray. Our Lord Jesus, this is a hard teaching.